Welcome to Talking Bach, a podcast by Bach Academy Australia. My name is Madeline Easton and I am the Artistic Director of Bach Academy Australia. This podcast series will accompany each of our concert series throughout the year. Welcome to the third series of Talking Bach. This series of podcasts focuses on our last concert series of the year, titled Grazia in Grazia. This is all about thanksgiving. It's about giving thanks for the health we have and the people we have around us and the wonderful great art that comes out of very, very hard times. This series of podcasts is all based around our final concert of the year, titled Grazia in Grazia, which is Latin for in thanksgiving. We are presenting Monteverdi's great mass of thanksgiving, which he wrote in 1631 to celebrate the end of the terrible second wave of plague that was in Venice at that time. Welcome, Matt. Welcome to Talking Bach. It's fantastic of you to join us on this podcast. Thanks, Maddie. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, um, I've got you on this podcast because of the reason that when I first had the idea for this program, Grazie and Grazia, I knew I had to call you basically. <laughs> and you have actually been with me every step of the way throughout the whole process from about a year ago, cur curating and getting all the ideas together, figuring out how on earth we were gonna make this work and helping me with all the logistics. So thank you so much for all of that. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it seems a very long time since that first coffee that we had starting to talk about this. And um, yeah, so every time a project like this comes up, uh, there are a bunch of red flags that come up and we've certainly had to think through a lot of things. Um, there's a reason that projects like this don't happen very often. It's because they present significant logistical issues. Um, and I think we've managed to solve all of the problems um, and I'm looking forward to playing the music very much. It's great to get these pieces in the one program together at the same time. That's right. And it's always a challenge, as you so rightly pointed out to me, when you combine Baroque and Renaissance music in the same program. Always. Um, one of the biggest issues is the instruments um, and the pitch that they play at. Um, so a lot of the time your Baroque instruments are playing at A415 hertz and Renaissance instruments historically would have played probably more, somewhere around A465, so a tone away from that. But um, the majority of instruments we have now are at A440, which is a semitone away and is very problematic. Um, but we've managed to find out a happy medium. And, and what I love about that whole process is that's a process that musicians hundreds of years ago were uh, going through. It was a problem they were dealing with at the time. And there was a lot of contention and argument and uh, I interesting ways of fixing these problems um, that came up at the time. And we, uh, ironically enough, being quite historical in the way that we approach those problems now. That's fantastic. Um, I love this process. I love the sort of figuring out how we're going to do it and, and all the history behind it. Um, and I'm so glad we've we've figured out all of the solutions and we sort of found solutions to the problems we came across. So we can create this journey from Italy through to Germany and trace the lineage from Monteverdi Schutz through to Bach and then link it to where we are today and link it to our experience over the last few years facing the pandemic we just have. Absolutely. Um, we've been through a really interesting time in the last few years, something that I think none of us were prepared for. Um, and it's really affected all of us. I don't know about other musicians, but for me, uh, I, of course, read about plagues and about the effect they had on musicians. Um, in fact, the plagues in Venice are one of the things that signed the death warrant for the Cornetto, one of the things that pushed it into obsolescence. Um, amongst a bunch of other factors at the same time, uh, plague ravaged Venice 
in the middle of the 1600s and killed off, or it appears to have killed off, a lot of the great players and makers at the time. They just disappear from the historical record. Um, and that's that's right at the time when the Cornetto starts to fall away and disappear um, in Italy and certainly places south of the Alps. So um, I'd read a lot about the plagues and, and the devastating effects they'd had on the music industry in Europe as well as in England. Um, but there was this hubris attached to it in the way that I read it. And like that could never happen to us. It was very detached. It was very apart. Um, and I think it hit extra hard when we were all faced with a similar situation. Now, don't get me wrong. We, we got off very lightly compared to how they um, experienced plagues. Uh, and that is thanks to the wonders of modern medicine, et cetera, et cetera. But um, it certainly makes me more uh, appreciative of every time I walk on a stage and um, this journey of connecting an audience with musicians from hundreds of years ago through the music. Uh, it's a very profound thing, and I think I'm more aware of its profundity now um, than I was before. And certainly uh, all of us, um, it'll be a long time before we take an audience for granted again. Absolutely right. Um, and you know what? Yeah, you're right. Because we have this sort of ability to and desire to, to reach back into history and, and sort of put ourselves in the position of those musicians back in the 1600s, it does give us this perspective. And um, I don't know about you, but yeah, my gosh, I've never been so grateful to walk back out on a stage again. I was actually just talking this morning to a couple of my non-musician friends about this sort of holy trinity I've talked about before between composer, performer and audience. And if you take even one of those away, it all becomes meaningless. Absolutely. I love the term um, that Bruce Haynes coined, musicking with a CK. Um, and that's the the act of all of the things involved in producing music. That's the writing, the improvising, the performing, the connection between the audience and the people. Uh, it's all one. Uh, and I think you're right. You take away one little part of that and the whole thing crumbles and our whole sense of self and, and the way that we've structured our lives around this art form crumbles very, very quickly. It's very fragile. Um, I think it's more beautiful for that fragility, but um, I'm not sure we were all aware of how fragile it was before this happened. Yeah, no, I certainly wasn't. And how did you go over the last few years? Look, I... Um, I remember the last gig I played before lockdown, I had no idea that it would be two years before I'd see an audience again. Um, it was a Renaissance gig. It was playing Venetian music, actually. And um, I remember having my mobile phone on the music stand in the rehearsal following um, the press conferences that were happening on this Sunday in March in 2020 um, and seeing things unravel as we, we got towards the concert. We played the concert. We all went for a beer at the pub afterwards and said, well, we'll see you later, guys. I'm not sure when we'll see you, but we'll see you soon. Uh, and that was it. Uh, and from there, all of the education work that I'm involved in um, began to be uh, restricted. And um, I mean, it was the right thing to do, absolutely, but it was very painful to watch and be a part of. Um, I think it was wonderful, there's something poetic about playing Venetian music on the the very last gig. <laughs> um, I felt like I should have had a plague mask uh, attached to my yes. stand or something at the time. Well, you can buy one from a Halloween shop, I'm I, sure. Do you know I have a Venetian plague mask at home? It I hangs in my music do. room. Um, it's one of my favourite You'll have to bring that to rehearsals. Absolutely. Yes, I'm pretty sure that when it all went south in 2020, I might have posted a picture on social media that had a little cornetto and a plague mask next to it. And that's oh. all. I didn't say anything. It was just, yep, that's enough said. This has happened. This has all happened before. Oh, well, it really has, hasn't it? And here we are again, and it will continue to happen in the future, won't Indeed, it? it will. We cannot beat viruses. We can't. No, no, we're just another organism in, in this planet, just like they are. And um, uh, we need to understand that these things are going to yeah, continue to happen, and humans are a fragile uh, little organic species. 
Um, and that's okay. That's fine. Philosophically, that's a thing we probably need to grapple with a little bit more than Absolutely we do. Absolutely right. I mean, musicians we need to understand the, our place in it all. Indeed. Um, and musicians in the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries were far more aware of the fragility of their existence um, than we are. They, they were far more in touch with the idea of death and disaster uh, because they had even less control than we do over it. Um, and I think there's something to be said for understanding the way they thought. Um, that certainly colours the way I think about that music. Um, they, they had a very different outlook on life to how we do. We're very uh, removed from death um, and we try not to talk about it in our culture and uh, we have everything very clean and sanitised. And I'm not sure that's exactly how it happened in the early modern period. No, I would absolutely agree with you. And nor does it happen the same way in other cultures. Um, you know, we all know if you go to Africa and if you see a mm. funeral, it's an absolute celebration. Absolutely. Every colour under the sun, all the music and dancing, and it's it's nuts. So, yeah, yeah we exactly. have a very odd relationship with death in, we do. in Australia in 2022. <laughs> anyway, I want to talk about your life, your background and how you came to be a professional musician and what led you to the cornetto as an instrument. It's a very weird and convoluted story. Um, I began playing music. Well, I guess I began singing when I was tiny. There are tapes of me singing a very long time ago when I was tiny. Um, and I sang in school choirs. I you know, loved that. When I was seven, uh, the local brass band conductor was giving free lessons to all of the kids who wanted them so that he could build up his band membership um, in Orange in New South Wales. So in a little regional brass band, um, I had lessons with this wonderful man named Bob Petrie and um, started playing trumpet and I was hooked from that moment um, playing brass instruments. Um, later on, I, I took it very seriously at school. That was a big part of my identity at school. Uh, I used to travel to Sydney a lot to play in um, various ensembles and um, projects down here. Um, and even to have some lessons from um, Sydney Symphony players, etc. Uh, and then I studied music education as my first degree. Um, so I was a trumpet player and a music ed student. Um, and I decided at the end of that um, journey that I'd like to take the performance a bit further because the education stuff does overwhelm the playing a little bit in those degrees. Um, so I did a Masters of Performance on Modern Trumpet. And it was during that um, time that I started to really get interested in Baroque music. Um, and by the end of that master's degree, I was playing uh, not modern trumpet as I started, but Baroque trumpet. Um, and I finished the degree on Baroque trumpet. Um, I suppose I got in touch with the Renaissance side of things um, a little bit earlier than that. I started singing in cathedral choirs as a, a lay clerk and a, a chorister. Um, and, and so singing all of that um, church music from the Renaissance got me very interested in how it worked. Um, and I love the sound of it. And I really enjoyed singing it. Uh, and then I started listening to recordings of groups like His Majesty's Sackbutts and Cornets, um, which eventually led me to emailing Jeremy West and saying, I'd like to buy a Cornetto. And we got chatting and he taught me by email for a while. And I taught myself a little bit and I had lessons from a few people here who um, who had Cornettos. But uh, it was, wasn't until I moved to England to really take it seriously that um, that I started to take off as a player. I sounded a bit like a, a squeaky duck for a couple of years there. Um, and uh, eventually, after lots of practice, it clicked and um, and I started playing wonderfully. I got to play with the people who had inspired me in the first place over there. I hear. I mean, I have a sort of a similar story, minus the education degree, <laughs> um, with my journey towards Baroque violin. And when you first pick up a Baroque instrument, um, I mean, John Elliott Gardner talks about this when he, oh, pardon me, when he first um, 
it decided that the English Baroque soloists should perform on original instruments. And they'd all been doing it on modern instruments with gut strings and everything else. And he said, no, 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 no. This is not working. We're not getting the sound that we need. So they all got original instruments. And he sort of makes this hilarious analogy of, you know, um, getting an old banger, old beat up farm truck and trying to learn how to steer it like a Ferrari. You know, <laughs> It takes a while, doesn't it? It takes it years does. to master the instruments. It does. Yeah. But as soon as I picked up a Baroque trumpet and played it, on that, even the classic after classical repertoire, um, it made more sense. Yeah. All this music that I hadn't really connected with properly before, it felt like I'd come home. Um, it was just right, uh, and and from that point, I was hooked. Absolutely, there was no going back. Um, I started playing my modern instruments so more like a baroque instrument, which you know. So I play piccolo trumpet, like try and make it sound like a baroque trumpet. Um, I've sold my piccolo now. It's it's not uh, not a pursuit that's worth pursuing I don't think a piccolo trumpet is what it is and a brock trumpet is what it is and I prefer the brock one um, and uh, in recent years I've got more interested in the true form of the brock trumpet the original form which has no vent holes so we have these little vent holes on the long yard pipe on the instrument that help us tame the more untamable notes so that they sound a little more palatable to modern ears um, but there is another way of playing on a very different setup of instrument that um, is much more challenging and much more fun, uh, and that's that's where I've headed in recent years with the I ventless natural playing. I have heard a lot about this because uh, um, when I lived in the UK, there was a raging debate going on um, between the trumpeters. Shouldn't probably say this, but I will. <laughs> between the Gabrielli consort and the trumpeters of the English Baroque soloists, who were arguing for and against these this very 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 exact same thing. Yes, I, I was around for some of that argument and debate. <laughs> yes. and it was very interesting to watch. So when I went to England, um, I assumed that I would be going there to be a Baroque trumpet player and to really pursue that. I hadn't had cornetto in my mind or ventless natural trumpet. I didn't even know that that was a thing really at that time. Um, and I listened to the playing. It was amazing. The, the London sound is amazing. Um, but it's very clean and it's often on modern mouthpieces and it's very much with vent holes. Uh, it's very safe. Um, and it requires you requires a very different approach. Um, and once I'd tasted the forbidden fruit of ventless <laughs> trumpet, um, it, it always seemed like uh, too much of a compromise. Now it's a compromise I'm still making professionally um, because you've got to get out there and do the gig. Um, and I have no problem playing with vent holes, but I think we all owe it to the music to be working on this a holy grail of ventless playing. There's a handful of players in the world who can really get around it now. Well, I wonder, um, I wonder um, what colours are we missing out on? What harmonic? You're missing out on the, oh, the colours because you know every time you yeah. change key and you can't get it in tune. I'm sure the composers would have known that and it would have added to the there are the emotional fingering impact. charts that um, bring the wind players in tune in inverted commas with. Um, those out of tune harmonics in inverted commas. Um, so if you're in C major in the top octave, it's your F and your A. Your F's uh, quite um, sharp and your A is quite flat. And you can do a bit of bending there, but those notes have to become weak for that to happen. And that changes the color of the chords and the way you shape the phrases. Um, someone once described ventless playing as, as like throwing a bee at the side of a barn that has a little tiny target on it and hoping you'll hit the target. It's a danger zone. Mm -hmm. um, and people are quite rightly scared of doing that in performance. I mean, I don't play most of the time first or second trumpet bark stuff ventless because that's very dangerous. And I can think of two or three people in the world who I would trust to do that at this point. Um, 
but I do play third trumpet all the time ventless now. So my approach now is rock up with a ventless trumpet and a vented trumpet and play ventless until you're told not to. Okay. Um, especially if I'm so my see my if the conductor spots it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because I think um, for the lower parts, certainly that the instrument responds better. It creates a bigger, a better um, base for the sound to sit on. For the other parts, the better connection between the timpani and the second trumpet. Um, especially when you're playing those those principale third trumpet lines. Mm. Um, yeah. So I'm I'm basically slowly. I'm doing the ninja effect um, with ventless trumpet, very quietly sneaking in and slowly getting used to doing it, doing it more and more. Um, the other way to approach it is to just jam all the time. We had a group in London called the Altenburg Ensemble who used to play all the time. Uh, we had the, the greatest player alive today, Jean-Francois Medef, come over and work with us for a few days. Uh, and he was incredible. He was an absolute machine. And we learned a load of that on my wall. I still have a, a sketch. We rehearsed for a day in an artist's studio in Wimbledon. And the artist made some wonderful, slightly modernist, angular sketches of us all playing around the timpani. And I've got one of those on my wall. It was a wonderful day. I learned a lot that day. Um, so yes, it's more of an ninja approach at the moment. A few of us are starting to experiment more and more with it. And in the next few years, you'll probably see a few gigs happening where we do play Ventless. Um, New Zealand, that's happening as well. Um, well, similarly. let us know. Yeah. Let us know when they are happening. I'm we sure will. there are people out there who would really be interested to hear the difference. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fascinating sound. Um, so was this part of your PhD research? No, it had nothing to do with it. That's a, a whole different area. So Gosh. while I'm being a ninja on trumpet, I'm, I'm being an evangelist on cornetto. Um, so I, I came back to Australia and went hard reminding people that it exists and that there's a, a huge amount, hundreds of years worth of music written that is right for this instrument, this instrument would have been used for and that it adds so much more when it's played well um, to a performance. So um, my PhD research was well and truly about the cornetto and about um, 16th century melodic theory um, and how that interacts with cornetto fingering systems from the time. So even on an instrument that is as socks and sandals as you get, as early music as you can possibly be, knit your own granola, um, the cornetto that we use now in most modern performance is not like the cornetto that was used in the 16th century. Why not? Because in the 70s, when this instrument was rediscovered after hundreds of years of obsolescence, um, the team of people who were rediscovering it were modern trumpet players for the most part. Um, and they were, well, the first uh, modern reproduction cornetto was made by Christopher Monk uh, and he patented it. And the patent is, is called, and I kid you not, improvements on the cornet. Um, and so they took things that they perceived through the, the lens of their modernist approach as flaws in the instrument and fixed them. So um, inconsistencies between the sounds of different notes um, uh, they got rid of some of the forked fingerings that happen on, on certain notes that give it a much more woofy, um, soft sound uh, and made it much more homogenous throughout the range of the instrument. But aren't we coming across the same problem here? We're ironing out all the imperfections and aren't we losing the colour? Well, I think we started off by ironing out the perfections and we lost the colour and now we're just in the process of rediscovering those uh, uh, blinkers that we had on when the early music movement first kicked off. It's really hard to see where your blinkers are as, as a, a thinker and as a player. Uh, we have hundreds of years of music in our minds that, um, that musicians back then didn't have in their minds. And we have a lot of things that we assume. So there are a lot of assumptions about modernism 
um, or that modernism creates that we have all imbibed and are part of our culture and the way we think artistically and in everyday life, and those affect the way we play. Things like instruments should have homogeneity across the range. In fact, one of the great goals of the late 19th, 30th, 20th century was to make instruments louder, to smooth out the sounds, think of woodwind fingering systems and, and key systems that even out the sound. That's fine. That's a valid artistic choice at that time, but it takes away layers and layers and layers of meaning from the early music. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of my PhD research was about how the cornetto itself, if you look at the original fingering charts and the original instruments and you um, uh, reverse engineer those, you can see that the things that are spoken about in treatises about melodic theory are built into the instrument. And when you play and allow the instrument to do the talking, uh, played in the way that it had been originally intended to be played or the way that people just played it because that's how instruments worked, um, it totally changes your approach to every part of the music making, all of the phrasing, all of the articulation, the way you balance chords, the way you tune. Um, it's all there. Uh, a good example is major thirds. So if you have a C and an E, uh, if you play a major third on a cornetto, it's a me. So there's a, a hexachord that is the way they thought about music, not in octaves, although they, they were aware of octaves. But um, the basic unit of melodic construction was a hexachord that has a semitone in the middle. And the me is on the E, the far is on the F. Mm -hmm. The me is hard in colour and the far is soft in colour. And on the most wind instrument fingering systems from the time, you have an unforked, um, straight fingering system, oh, fingering, sorry, for that note, and a forked, softer, woofier sound for the fars. So your me's and fars come out. Um, when you put those in a chord that's purely in tune, let's say it's a C major chord, C, E, and G, your E is hard sounding, but the pitch is low. And a lot of the time we, th we equate in our modernist thinking with equal temperament, blah, 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 we equate um, hardness with highness. Mm -hmm. um, and yes. you can actually have hard and low at the same time and it totally changes the paradigm. It's wonderful. So there's a lot of thinking that has to go into it and I'm still working out the best way to teach it. I teach this to students at the con every year in Sydney um, and I love that first lecture with them because they all walk out looking a little bit shell-shocked. They Basically, yes. when I discovered this stuff, I'm not the person who came up with these ideas, I just took them another step. Uh, when I first read um, books like Anne Smith's The Performance of 16th Century Music, um, I kind of had to curl up into a cocoon for a little while and, and have a big think about everything I knew. And I love watching that happen to students now, yeah. uh, tertiary students who, oh, everything I learned is wrong. It's different. I can relate to that. Yeah. I've done my fair share of over in London of teaching on stringed instruments, unequal temperaments and watching mm -hmm. their minds explode. It's and fabulous. having to unlearn everything they've been taught, you know. Um, once you get past the shock of that newness, um, you're then presented with an endless possibility of options and uh, and it's so exciting and you're on the forefront and every decision you make musically then has to be informed and um, it forces you to be a thinker as well as a player. That's absolutely the one thing I try and teach my students. Use your brains, read, research and question the whole way through. Absolutely. But it's great. I mean, your stu your students are so lucky to have you to do that. Um, and isn't life amazing as a modern day musician in the 21st century? Um, we can support ourselves. We can earn our own living. Um, but life back then, back in 16, 1600s, um, Italy would have been very, very, very different. I mean, what was life like in Venice as a musician? Also, let's just not forget the political instability of the time, the Gonzagas in the Milan area um, versus the Republic of Venice and the constant wars, the constant backstabbing 
undercutting, doing of deals behind the scenes. And then there's the plague. And then these musicians were caught constantly in the middle of it, constantly being underpaid. I read about Monteverdi and how he was just terribly treated by the Gonzagas. And there's yep. this amazing story of when he was, um, you know, he having to return to Cremona almost penniless and then coming back when he got, finally got paid and then getting robbed by robbed high on women way. on the way back. And it's not like you can just turn up to the bank and say, oh, someone stole my credit card. It's gone. It's in a bag on your side. Um, yeah, he really had it tough, I suppose. Life was a lot tougher at that time in a lot of ways. Um, there's a risk of mythologizing how people lived at that time. That that was all they knew. Uh, they were just people like we're people trying to get on with life, but they really did have a tough time. There were, there were things that we don't have to deal with that they dealt with on a daily basis. Um, just the wars the Gonzagas were involved in. Um, I heard a, an academic once postulate that perhaps the Monteverdi Vespers might well have been performed or some of it would have been performed for the first time in a tent on a battlefield. That's quite likely. Um, Monteverdi was writing his great Vespers probably as a, a job interview um, for the job in Venice that he wanted. He wanted to get out of the Gonzaga court and get to Venice uh, and ultimately he was successful in that. Um, but it's very likely some of the music that was in that collection happened on a battlefield and musicians were servants. It's, it's easy to forget that. They were servants in the end um, to lords and dukes and princes, and um, they went where they were told. Uh, same with city musicians, trumpeters in Germany, Bach's trumpeters a lot of the time were Stadtpfeifer, so they were city pipers, city musicians. Gottfried Reicher, um, Bach's most famous trumpet player, uh, there's a lovely portrait of him holding a curly trumpet in a fanfare. Uh, he was a Stadtpfeifer. In fact, the great thing about him is he, he probably played cornetto as well. And he probably played some of Bach's cornetto parts. Yes, we're going to get on to we'll that. We'll get on to that shortly. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so you went where you were told. Um, that being said, there uh, there's no shortage of evidence that cornetto players especially were, were, were aware of their worth and their importance. Um, uh, there's a wonderful letter by Luigi Zenobi um, to an unnamed prince. Uh, talking about the qualities of a great musician or a great leader, he's basically providing a, a job description of uh, a Kapellmeister um, or a, a leader of the choirs and the, the music in a court. Um, and he speaks at length about how much cornets should be paid and the great players should be paid well. There's um, ample other written evidence that my favourite bit of evidence of cornet players uh, liking their pay is a little wooden statue in Venice. Um, it's a satyr. And on uh, a strap around his shoulder, he has a cornetto case. Uh, and in his right hand, he's holding a little bag of money. And at the bottom uh, of the statue is a little carving that says avarice, which is avarice or greed. So um, cornetto players were known for asking what they're worth. Uh, trumpet players, similarly, trumpet players had probably a higher status. They, um, uh, they were generally, if they survived, being a third trumpet player or a military trumpet player long enough and to get good at playing the high parts, they were looked after. They had a decent enough life. Um, yeah, so life was tricky back then. Uh, very different from now. We don't have the, the highly stratified society that they lived in. Um, and and we as musicians are freelancers. We're, uh, we're always looking for a gig. We're always trying to pay the bills. Musicians back then probably had patronage. I suppose there are models of patronage that we now have for ensembles. Uh, it's not so different, but they're not the prince. You're not working for a court um, and you're not so much a servant anymore. Um, it's a very big change. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know what you mean. Um, and this mass of Thanksgiving that we're playing, 
this is an incredibly important piece um, of music, not just for Monteverdi, but in history as well. I love this this just image in my head I have of this glorious um, service in St Mark's Cathedral, which we all know is one of the greatest architectural miracles of the human race. <laughs> and then, you know, I mean, when I spoke to Dr Norman Swan last week, mm-hmm. um, we were talking about this particular event and how pandemics don't just end. Yes. But they kind of decided that it had ended. <laughs> and, you know, they had this huge, huge um, church service and this procession across the Grand Canal. Um, and they crossed the canal on canal boats. And then they laid the foundation stone so of Santa, Santa Maria, Maria della Salute, Salute, Salute. Which is now yeah. this iconic building in Venice. It's it the is. thing everyone associates with the Grand Canal. And yeah. it's, it's a, funny to imagine that that wasn't there at that time. Um, yes, it would have been a spectacular occasion. There's a, any number of paintings uh the Canaletto paintings come to mind um of these great events in Venice and in St Mark's Square and on the boats out in the in the canal um it's such an amazing place Venice is inconceivable why would someone build the most beautiful city in the world on a bunch of muddy islands um and then control all of the trade routes and it's just incredible and it was this f- uh, fermenting um, pot of all of uh, a lot of different influences and, and and so much money that you could just make art and they really wanted to show off their art so in the golden gilded arches of this byzantine um saint mark's uh all of this incredible music from gabrielli and, and his predecessors right through to monteverdi and beyond um it's an astounding an astounding place and i'm not surprised that a mass so luscious and wonderful and over the top would have happened i'm getting goosebumps I am. I'm, I'm totally getting goosebumps thinking about this and how it's going to sound in Angel Place. Absolutely. And I'm I'm thrilled that we're actually going to be performing the, pretty much the complete mass with fanfares, incantations and everything. <laughs> but we also have a bit of Gabrielli in the program um, to break up the, the big sections of the mass and Merula, who is another Venetian composer. Absolutely, yes. Um, and it's it's quite likely well, little canzones like Gabrielli's are, are written specifically for that. Um, to be placed in a liturgical context. Uh, it's great to have them in amongst the Mass. We often hear Masses performed as the proper, the, the general seven or so movements um, of the Mass, and it's lovely when you get to hear them either in a liturgical context, the way they were written for, or um, or in a concert form where you hear some of the other music that would have happened in between those movements, I think is a much richer experience. That's right. And we finished the first half with Cantate Domino, the little motet, which yes. is a great rounding off of the whole thing. It's beautiful, it's staggering, great. gorgeous work. Um, so much dance in there and so much life and light. Well, um, that's what, what this is what it's all about, is just giving thanks and being positive. Absolutely. Um, after all of this. I think it's the perfect music and it's a, a lovely uh, mirror image from hundreds of years ago that we can create uh, in a concert hall rather than in St Mark's. But um, funnily enough, the acoustic in Angel Place is not so different from St Mark's. We often imagine St Mark's as having this large, echoey, boomy, cathedral-like acoustic, but it's um, it's covered in tiny little tiles. It's all mosaic, and that diffuses the sound in a really interesting way. Um, so all of that Venetian polychoral music was probably much more intimate and close-sounding, much more like a recital hall than a great cathedral. I've always thought that, actually, because um, why would these composers have written the music they did if they didn't think it would sound good in the place it was written for. Absolutely. Um, yeah. uh, Santa Maria della Salute is a, is a great example. Um, if you walk in there now, it's an enormous cavernous space. I have a very 
strong memory of, of walking in there the very first time and there was an art installation in there that was smoke rising from the centre of the, the, under the main dome and there was a fan above it, very silent, slow fan that drew the smoke up um, into it. It was like the, the incense smoke wafting into heaven or the music drifting through the room. Thought, wow, imagine hearing this music in this great echoing space. And then I read a book called Sound and Space, which... <laughs> debunks that completely and shows that there are pictures um, when they had big performances in these grand, grand spaces, often there was scaffolding for the musicians and the clergy and all the people to stand on. They were all wearing large absorbent robes and there were tapestries and rugs, all sorts of things hung around. So the sound was much more intimate in those great spaces than perhaps we would um, expect nowadays. It's um, it's a really interesting uh, dichotomy between the grandness we associate with great space and long acoustics and the intimacy that they were probably going for. Yeah. I, yeah, it's just very, very interesting, isn't it? Um, that might be something that big cathedrals, that would be great if they could explore that. Totally agree. Then then we could actually more successfully perform these works in the great cathedrals. And the people up the back could hear the notes yeah. rather than a wash of sound. A wash of sound is very pleasant, but um, uh, composers wrote notes for a reason. Uh, and with a lot did. of this music, they wrote only some of the notes. So we're supposed to fill in the gaps. We're supposed to improvise over the top yes. uh, as musicians. And a lot of the time in the, the really big acoustics, you're limited in how much of that you can do because of the space and the amount of reverb. This is something I, I always get my students to do is to practice improvisation and ornamentation. And you should see the looks on their faces when I say, come on, make stuff up. Come on, <laughs> do it. And they just, they're, you know, pour things, rabbit in headlights, and then bit by bit they get used to it. But... It's whole, important to just drag yourself away from the page sometimes. Yeah, well, our whole music system is yeah. uh, about music literacy. The way that we teach is about music literacy yeah. and about playing exactly what's on the page. And again, there are some more modernist hangovers from the um, first half of the 20th century that we have to deal with. But the vast majority of music that has ever been made by humans was not written down. It was improvised. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and we need to learn how to do that. That totally changes the way that you play the written stuff as well. Even when you're only playing the notes on the page, your understanding is so much greater if you can compose as well. We're back to that musicing thing again. The musicing where thing, comp yes. Composition and performance are the same. Um, but look, let's talk about shoots. Ah, shoots. Well, <laughs> yes, now, I have not really played much shoots, being a violinist, mm -hmm. because there isn't much out there, really. Um, but, you know, how is he important to you as a composer? Um, there are very few composers that can drag my attention away from Bach and Monteverdi. Um, that's why I love this program so much. It's one of my favourites. Um, Schutz is one of them. His music is utterly unparalleled. Um, I think he's one of the most underrated, one of the greatest composers that ever walked this earth. Um, so he studied in Venice with Gabrielli. He came from Dresden. Um, he then took his ideas back north um, of the Alps, uh, along with a few other composers who went south to study. And these Italian ideas um, infused all of the music for the next 50 or 60 years um, up in the German-speaking lands. Um, so you had the polychoral writing, so multiple choirs in different places bouncing off each other um, that Gabrielli was very famous for uh, and St. Mark's was famous for, and that starts happening in German music. Um, it tends to get higher, so instead of playing a cornetto, you're playing a cornetino, so a little tiny one, and the music goes way up into the stratosphere. Uh, and like later composers, or things Bach, for example, a lot of the florid ornamentation is written there for you, and Schutz did that as well. Incredibly florid vocal parts and uh, wind parts and string parts. Um, and it's very complicated, very in-depth music, very hard to play, and heaps of fun to do. Um, 
think maybe my favorite bit of shoots, which is not probably the right piece for this program, uh, but I encourage everyone to go out and find it, is um, Zal Zal. Uh, it's a setting of the conversion of Saul on his way to Damascus, um, where God speaks to him and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Um, so in German, that's um, Zal Zal, was vergoft du mich? Uh, and you hear this start in the basses and then it rises up from the basses into the altos and the sopranos and then it bounces around the walls of this canyon you can see the the rocky road that Saul 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 is um, walking on and then the voice of God echoes around in triple time all of it Zal, 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 off the, off the walls of the canyon. It's astounding writing. It's so emotional too. There's and, no and, way you no. could have had these later composers like Bach had Schutz not done what he did. Um, and the piece we're doing of his, his setting of Psalm 150, yeah. um, is, is just the same. It's full of joy. The text is all about um, all the ways you can praise God with um, the sounds of lutes and vials and harps and voices. Uh, and it does the Venetian polychoral thing of having a little group and then a large tutti group, uh, and those those two uh, textures play off each other constantly. It's, it's astounding music, um, it and everyone is. needs to listen to more shoots. Oh, I totally agree. Yeah, and um, I find that a lot of um, you know my colleagues um, they may may have heard of shoots, but they've certainly never listened to any, and they've never explored it in this way, and it would blow their minds. Yes, absolutely. And agree. I just had to put shoots in there because of Bach, basically, and how much Bach was influenced by shoots. Mm. You know, it really does bring us home to Bach. And it does. through Schutz, we can link Monteverdi, Venice, Dresden, finally to Leipzig. And it's we arrive in Leipzig and we're presenting BWV 63, which is one of my absolute adored favourites of all the cantatas. Um, and we arrive here in Leipzig with this incredible piece, four trumpets, timpanis, four three trumpets. oboes. It's yes. got the lot. It's a massive lineup. But usually you have three trumpets and, uh, and a timpani. So I always think of the third trumpet part as the first timpani part and the timpanist as the second timpani. But in this one, we have uh, this, these wonderful two low trumpet parts, principale parts, working with the timpani to create this rumbling, militaristic, joyful um, affect underneath all of the, Harmonic the other stuff. percussion. It's just amazing. Wonderful writing. Yeah, so tell me about Bach and the cornetto. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, well, you yeah, see. So everyone assumes Bach, the cornetto was dead and gone by the time um, Bach comes along, but actually it's not the case. Um, so Bach wrote quite a few pieces for cornetto. A lot of the time it's doubling the voices and it's in the smaller cantatas, especially from early on. By about the second quarter of the 18th century, the cornetto really is disappearing properly. Um, but he, I think the greatest thing that Bach wrote for Cornetto doesn't get performed, we don't think, until 1740, which is really late. I mean, Gottfried Reicher died six years before that, um, and so we don't know who played it, but whoever they were, they were good. It's hard. This is a, a florid Cornetto part. Um, so this is BWV 118, um, or Jesu Christ mein Lebenslicht, so O Jesus, Light of My Life. Um, it's written for a Cornetto, three sackbuts, two litui, which we're not sure. There's a bit of a debate about what that means. It might mean horn. So a lituus is the curly part on the top of a bishop's staff. So whatever instrument it was, it was curly. It uses the notes of the harmonic series. So it's either a very high uh, brock horn or it's a curly trumpet like Gottfried Riker is holding in that portrait. 
Um, and so these two trumpet parts play these gorgeous little chords over the top and the and there's an ebbing and flowing, a kind of pulsation in the music. Uh, and then four vocal parts singing a very beautiful, simple chorale. And the cornetto part weaves in and out of that and up into the stratosphere. It's very, very high. Uh, and this whole cantata last cantata motet, it, it defies description, lasts about four minutes. And it was written for uh, a graveside. And it probably involved the Stadtfeier for the city musicians at the time in um, Leipzig. Uh, and uh, so 1740 is very late to have Cornetto playing like that, uh, even north of the Alps. The other pieces, uh, my favourites, are BWV4. So that's um, Chris Lag in Tortoise Banden. Yes, of course. That would have been the early version of it. It was actually the later version. It was no, the third okay. time it was performed. Yep. I stand yep. corrected. Uh, it was, uh, let me just double check this, 1720 something, <laughs> I think, that it was performed the third time. Uh, maybe 1725. I may be wrong there. Um, yeah, so weirdly enough, it, the cornet wasn't involved and the sackbutts weren't involved in that first performance of it, but later he added them in. And the yeah. association of the cornetto and sackbutts with death is a thing that runs right through their history. Well, exactly. With the, you know, just got to look at the Mozart Requiem. Absolutely. It's there. Yeah, in the trombones, that, that yeah. continues. The cornetto is uh, all about death. Like, like all things 16th century, it's incredibly symbolic. It has, mm. uh, it's black. That is a symbol of death. Uh, it's got eight sides and eight is a... a, a graphene that um so it's a, a figure that continues forever it's a bit like the infinity sign so think of the eight sides yeah. as infinity and at the top there are these little diamonds carved and they may well represent the european adult which is the snake you see around the medical symbol and that represents life so in this one instrument you've got life death and eternity which is staggering i love to me. that it's so beautiful and so the cornetto often comes up um, in places in monteverdi's operas as well in places where your uh, your text is talking about um, death or the sea, which is often associated with death as well. Uh, the other great Bach cantata, I think, um, that has cornetto with it is uh, BWV 25, which is Es ist nicht gesund ein meinem Leben. So, there's nothing sound in my body. So, once again, it's about death and um, penitence and darkness. Um, very Lutheran. Very Lutheran, <laughs> as Lutheran <laughs> as it gets. Um, uh, it, it's a similar sort of thing to Chris Lagen Tordesbanden. Uh, and the cornetto and sackbutts play along with the voices, and they have a couple of little extra bits in there as well. Um, that cantata is is one of my all time favorites. I'll never forget the first time I played it. I was sitting in the warehouse, and uh, we started to rehearse the piece, and uh, we played the opening chorus, and then um, I think it's a verse, verse. Oh, hang on, what is it? It's the first or the second verse, and it's just the sopranos and altos on this beautiful ground bass that the. Um, the cello and the double bass has and the organ and then you get these clashing semitones um and I honestly I just had this uncontrollable reaction I just started to cry it's my body just took over and that's what the music did to me yes it, I totally understand I, I had a similar experience uh on my 30th birthday it was I did my first gig in Germany I was um, sitting alongside David Staff um the very famous cornetto player and trumpet player. Um, uh, he was playing first, I was playing second. Uh, and he deliberately, because this is how stuff he rolls, uh, in rehearsals, he refused to tell me where we were going from. He said, no, you need to be able to count in German. So I had to learn to count in German very quickly. Uh, it was the start of my German journey. Uh, and then in, in the shows, he, he didn't warn me that in this beautiful little town that was, we stayed in the nunnery. We were woken by the nuns singing every morning. It was staggering. They ran the place, this wonderful old cathedral. Everyone came from miles around to see the show. Um, and we were playing Schutz and Pretorius, uh, all sorts of wonderful, uh, very Lutheran music. Uh, he didn't warn me that 
all of the audience would stand up and sing every chorale that we played in these pieces and I burst into tears listening to it. It was so yes. moving in their perfect, wonderful German uh, and, and they all knew the tunes so intimately. It was such a part. I'm getting chills thinking about it now. It was such a, uh, a part of their makeup yes, um, and it it's something I'd never experienced in my life. It was astounding to listen to um, with these ancient instruments in this ancient place and professional singers and players up there on the stage. It, it means wonderful. so much to them, doesn't it? Um, and we we don't understand that we don't we don't have that here in Australia. But you just have to go to any of these little towns in Germany, or you know, like go to the Leipzig Bach Festival, go to any of the concerts there, and you'll see the entire audience slash congregation yep. stand up and sing the chorales. It's part of their DNA. It's their history. Yes. And the only thing we have to relate to that here in Australia is that fantastic, um, the Nataria Women's Choir. Yes. From Hermannsburg in the middle of Australia where they have been singing Bach chorale since 1877 in their own language. Yep. And in a and that a is vocal part of that is so now different. part of their um their culture. Bach has become into yep. you know intrinsically into not just Bach, but a lot of the, the Lutheran music. But music, thanks to the missionaries there, um, is part of the um indigenous culture now. It's um it's wonderful. It's often been said that Bach is so good that it's pretty hard to ruin it. And you, it, it survives so many things. It, in fact, thrives in situations where it's being sung in a style of singing that's so different to the way it was written and it still sounds incredible. Um, yeah, that, that choir is in, um, amazing, an amazing piece of historical artefact and musical artefact and, and then this living tradition that goes back like tens, tens of thousands of years and then is connected to this other living tradition from the other side of the world. It blows my mind. Um, human cultures... Uh, a really delicate garden um, and I love when little things like that happen and these two parts of this garden interact with each other in an unexpected way. Oh, yes, exactly. Very well put, Matt. My Thank gosh. <laughs> um, but it takes a genius like Bach it does. to see that garden. Um, I've been actually talking to uh, the Bach Festival in Leipzig. They're putting together a big video right now um, from people from all over the world who are involved in Bach. And at the last count, there were over 300 Bach ensembles in over 60 different countries, I think, around the world. Isn't that extraordinary? Can you think of a single other composer that's managed to do that? Not at all. No, and it I doesn't surprise me. Something about Bach. Yep. And... Yes, I have all these thoughts and emotions as to why Bach, and I know why. I just wish I was better at articulating it. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I understand yeah. exactly what you're saying. The weird thing is he wasn't this godlike figure in his own time. This no, all happened later. Yeah, bloke, just a really. bloke doing his job, <laughs> yeah. getting on with it. Uh, I always think of uh, the Toccata in Fugue in D minor. Everyone thinks of that painting of Bach when he's much or even a Beethoven kind of painting with wild mm. hair everywhere and sort of frowning expression. Um, it's the serious actually, cantor. He was pretty young when he wrote that. He was a dude rocking out on the organ. Yeah. When he was a, <laughs> right. It was awesome. He, like, he was really going for it, having a great time. Um, so, yes, yeah, the working musician who somehow creates this massive um, body of work that we still have access to today and we're probably only seeing a slither of what he actually wrote and was I know. involved in. Gosh, I know. When you think of how much was lost. Yes. Let's not go there. I Let's will not. cry. <laughs> yeah, no. But you know what Bach does? He creates transcendence. Hmm. He allows us to transcend our own existence, our own worries and, uh, you know, the, the minute of day-to-day -day life, which really does grind us down. He gives us that ability to transcend all of us and take us to a much higher, purer, cleaner 
more meaningful place. Yep, it's transcendence in the true, well, it every, is in, in the every true sense. sense. Of, yes. It really is, and it does it for everyone, regardless of where you're from, what your um, situation is. It will do it for you. You don't have to speak German. Just listen nope. and feel. <laughs> Absolutely, you do. And for all yeah. the trumpet players out there, you should get a Brock trumpet and you should just jam. jam there are yeah. three books that have all of the Bach trumpet parts in them, and uh, I think it's one of the greatest things you can do as a musician is to just sit down with some friends and play through cantata after cantata after cantata yes and that's without all the string parts and all the vocal parts it's just one little tiny slither of it that um uh yeah it's an incredible thing to do incredible thing to be part of and then when you get to play it in uh in performance um there's i'm never bored of bach i never i find something new in it every time i play it uh and and this is just a humble little trumpet player i play in d major my job rhetorically speaking is to be war or celebration that's pretty much it that's all we do. And, um, and, and even that, there's a whole world within that, you know, and everyone knows what their job is and how to approach that. And if you really focus on your part of the, uh, of the piece of art, the whole piece of art comes together. And uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's it writ small, the thing that music is in the larger world, that uh, humans creating art, decorating time with sound, um, this ephemeral and ethereal thing that's gone the moment um, you've done it. Uh, it, it's such a weird thing that we've decided to do as humans and it's so profound and wonderful. I'm glad that we do it. I'm glad that we do it too. I mean, it's a heck of a life. It's not for the faint-hearted being a musician. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> You're certainly not in it for the money. Absolutely but not. But I'm so glad that we are. It, it, it's it's a wonderful life. It is. For all it those is. reasons. And um, I can't wait to present this program curated by you and me. And it's going to be amazing. So please do come along um, to either Chatswood on Sunday the 13th of November at this beautiful church in Chatswood called Our Lady of Dolores. That's at 2.30, Sunday the 13th of November. And then on Monday night, um, Bach Academy Australia makes our debut at the City Recital Hall. It will be a momentous occasion for us as a group and to present this incredible Venetian journey all the way, right the way through to Leipzig, ending with this incredible Christmas cantata of Bach. What a way to end the year, huh, Matt? Fantastic. Yes, get there. You're doing, you're doing yourself a favour. Um, don't miss this amazing opportunity to hear this wonderful music. It's very rare you get to hear the whole gamut of Monteverdi through to Bach in the same concert for the reasons we discussed. Uh, it's It's been an absolute pleasure to work on with Maddie. Uh, it's been wonderful. So, yeah, everyone, come to the concert. You won't be disappointed. <laughs> you won't. Thank you so much, Matt. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, I really hope you enjoyed that chat just as much as I did. Now, to find out more about Bach Academy Australia, make sure you visit our website, which is www.bachacademyaustralia.com.au. Make sure you spell Academy the German way as well, spelt A-K-A-D-E-M-I-E, staying true to our German roots, of course. On our website, you can find out the details of all our upcoming performances near you, and you can subscribe to our e-newsletter. Also, you can find Bach Academy Australia on all the socials, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. But make sure you subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time. Music